The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, the new COVID timeline. When lockdowns will end, according to the health experts, Delta in the outback, COVID reaches the far corners of New South Wales. Why some of our Olympians are being forced to undergo double quarantine and a mental health check for the 2 million Australian students learning from home. But first, Melbourne residents will live another week under lockdown restrictions after stay-at-home rules were extended in the city. Here's the Premier Dan Andrews announcing that news. This is very challenging, I know, for every single Victorian who would like to be going about their business. I'd like to be open and have a degree of freedom that's simply not possible because of this Delta variant. If we were to open, then we would see cases akin to what's happening uh, tragically in Sydney right now. Georgia Commonsoli joins us live in Melbourne tonight. So, Georgia, what does this all mean? What's the latest? Well, Michael, it certainly was the news Melbourne was hoping to hear today, but it wasn't totally unexpected. Right now, we've got up to 14,000 people in isolation. Our exposure site list only in the last few hours has risen to over 300 places. And 20 new daily cases today meant that our sixth lockdown will drag out for another seven days. The reason why our restrictions won't be eased from tomorrow is that there were five mystery cases out of those 20 daily cases, and authorities want to make sure that they get on top of those. The goal is so that any of our daily cases are either in isolation when they do pop up or authorities want to make sure that they are linked to current outbreaks. And Georgia, let's talk about some protests today. Uh, one made a bit of noise, uh, first disrupting the Premier's press conference, then tonight with a planned rally at Flinders Street Station. Michael, that's right. There was one protester who interrupted the Daily Dan press conference this morning, demanding Premier Daniel Andrews' attention by repeatedly yelling out his name. A couple of PSOs did tackle the man to the ground before taking him away. And then later this evening, uh, early this evening, sorry, at around 7 o'clock, there was a rally planned here outside Flinders Street Station. The few protesters who did arrive in the city were met with a pretty heavy police presence. Police surrounded the CBD, making sure that they couldn't get here to Flinders Street Station. And because of that, only a handful of arrests were made. Michael. All right, Georgia Commonsoli in Melbourne, thank you for that. Well, on another day of over 300 new cases, the New South Wales Premier has given her clearest indication yet as to when life could start to return to normal. Two doses of 70% vaccination. If we keep the current pace, we hit that around the end of October and we hit 80% double doses towards uh, the middle of November. Now, according to the Doherty report, that's when life looks like getting back to normal. That's when we have uh, a different approach to COVID. Let's go to Tom Hartley live in Sydney tonight. Tom, hello to you. Now, this evening there are reports of a new uh, police crackdown and some new powers tonight. Yeah, Marsh, we're hearing that the police commissioner, Mick Fuller, is going to be brought in to oversee the state's response to this Delta outbreak. Much in the same way last year he was brought in to oversee the response to the Ruby Princess crisis. Now, he's been granted new powers as the state emergency operations controller and alongside the police and the jobs minister. And those three will be reworking the public health orders so that they work in the favour of the police and not in the favour of the public. So people will stop exploiting the rules based. Basically. Now, immediately they're going to th focus on three rules, three key areas. The first is for people who have multiple residences across New South Wales. They're going to stop that, uh, stop people from being able to visit their second home. For instance, if you live here in Greater Sydney that's locked down, but you have a holiday house up on the north coast, you won't be able to go there. The idea there is to stop uh, the virus from being able to leach into regional New South Wales. Now, secondly, they're going to crack down on this singles bubbles. They're really going to make it hard uh, to 
have just uh, strangers or multiple people if you're uh, a single person having other people yeah. around in your home. They're going to make it uh, easier for the police to figure out who's actually telling the truth and who's lying. And thirdly, they're going to call on the ADF, the Defence Force, for more help. Basically, more troops on the ground to help with compliance. Now, they'll be reworking those rules over the next 48 hours. We're expecting to see uh, what those new measures look like in the next couple of days. Tom, what about this Byron outbreak? What's the latest there? And Michael, here's a name that's hard to pronounce, but one that a lot of people up the Northern Rivers aren't willing to forget right now. Zoran Radovanovic. He's the 52-year-old who travelled allegedly up uh, from Sydney to Byron with his two teenagers whilst infectious on that real estate junket visiting multiple venues. Now, today, Zoran... Zoran Radovanovic was uh, served with a notice to appear in court from uh, Lismore Hospital where he's currently there with his kids uh, being treated for COVID and he's expected to appear in court next month. And because he didn't check into multiple venues that he's allegedly visited while infectious, it's actually taken contact tracers uh, some time to uh, yeah. gather that information to collate this list. But now that we are seeing it, it, it includes venues like pharmacies, takeaway shops, cafes, supermarkets, and even uh, a mass massage clinic. Now we'll be keeping a close eye on those case numbers, hoping that testing numbers go up and those case yeah. numbers stay down. Too many contact locations there, though. That's a concern. All right, Tom, thank you for that in Sydney. Walgett in northern New South Wales and its surrounds are in lockdown tonight. The remote towns recorded a positive case and a number of close contact exposure sites have been identified. I'm joined now by the member for Barwon Region, Roy Butler. Roy, thank you for your time on the latest tonight. No problems. What do we know about the case so far, Roy? So we know the gentleman arrived into Walgett on the 9th of August. Um, uh, he didn't know he was positive when he travelled in. Uh, the test result came back after he already arrived. So in the time he'd been in Walgett, he'd been active in the community, uh, had been moving around, and uh, that's a real risk in a town like Walgett. You know, Walgett is a, uh, a, a community with uh, a lot of Aboriginal folk, and uh, a lot of them are well-aged. A lot of them have uh, comorbidities and other uh, complications in health. And we have very limited medical services in our regional communities. So all of the river towns uh, have a similar makeup like that. We're um, limited health services and uh, high Aboriginal populations, which uh, uh, presents a, a massive risk. You know, um, uh, culturally, it's absolutely appropriate and normal for uh, uh, Aboriginal families to gather, uh, to get together. Uh, it's part of uh, how they work and what they do. And at the moment, it's going to be incredibly hard for those families to uh, uh, not be able to get together like they normally would. Needless to say, you're very concerned, Roy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got seven LGAs now uh, as of seven o'clock tonight that have gone into um, uh, a stay-at-home order situation or a lockdown. That's going to have a massive impact on business and trade. Uh, and uh, we're only just coming out of uh, the impact of the drought, you know, and seeing some green shoots of, uh, of good economic activity, uh, which is going to now um, be cruel for at least a week. I really hope that we can get this uh, under control in a week. And I've been on the phone today to the Health Minister and to the Deputy Premier, and um, they are going to set up a vaccination hub uh, in Walgett. They've got drive-through testing starting at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, which is great. Uh, what this is all about is the mobility of people through communities. So uh, Walgett, Burke and Brewarrina uh, are communities that people move between. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of movement between those communities and Dubbo. And the risk is there's more cases out there that we don't know about. Uh, the risk is those people are still moving about. We know the virus only moves with people, which is why uh, this, this difficult decision to put in place a stay-at-home order has been taken. I have supported the decision um, reluctantly, but uh, I know there'll be some people won't be happy about it, but I don't know what other alternatives
confidence we have. Roy, this was the great concern that it was going to spread far and wide and get into vulnerable communities, and it's happened there. Fingers crossed for the next few days. We thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Queensland has unveiled its mass vaccination hub in Brisbane, booking out on its first day. And as we get more and more supply, uh, that is due in uh, September and then, of course, uh, through to Christmas, we'll be able to look at opening more of these centres uh, across the southeast and across uh, regional Queensland. Elliot Chipper is our reporter in Brisbane tonight. Elliot, good evening to you. Will this centre make a big dent in those vaccine numbers? Good evening, Michael. Yes, it certainly will. Currently, uh, Queensland Health have reported that there's actually a backlog of more than 200,000 Queenslanders that have registered online but are still waiting for an appointment to get their first jab. Now, this centre here on its first day saw 1,500 people through their doors in just eight hours. As more Pfizer vaccine becomes available later in the week from the federal government, that capacity is set to double to 3,000. Now, that's going to go a long way. Uh, in the next 30 days, 188,000 Queenslanders are booked in right across the state to get their jabs. 75,000 for their first, 113,000 jabs for their second. A lot of that will be done here in Brisbane. So, of course, this hub and as more supply comes into Queensland, we can start to see more hubs like this, potentially even drive-through, and that'll get a long way uh, to seeing that 70 to 80% magic number uh, for vaccinations right across the state. Michael? Which we need. Such a good move there. And Elliot Cairns uh, came out of lockdown this afternoon. Can you give us an update on restrictions across the state now? Yeah, fantastic news for Cairns up there. Uh, a three-day snap lockdown after a taxi driver was found to be positive and infectious in the community for more than 10 days. Of course, he caught it from a marine reef pilot uh, who was a passenger in his taxi. So uh, quite a bit of worry up in Cairns after he'd been in the community for quite a fair bit of time. 4,000 tests were done in the last 24 hours, but over those three days in that snap lockdown, not a single person tested positive. So must be something about the heat or the humidity up there, Michael, not quite sure. Um, but great news for Cairns. They came out at four o'clock this afternoon, but they're now subject to the same restrictions as South East Queensland, which means masks. Schools are open, but high school students have to wear them as well. 10 people in the home, 20 people at weddings and funerals, no community sport, and for businesses, that's one person per four square metres, or we're seated, a maximum capacity of 50%. Michael? All right, good on you, Elliot, there. Elliot Chipper in Brisbane, thank you. The Australian Olympic Committee has described a refusal by South Australia to grant border exemptions to returning athletes as cruel and uncaring. 16 Olympians are currently spending two weeks in Sydney hotel quarantine before returning to their home state, where they'll have to spend another two weeks isolating at home. The AOC said it had sought an exemption from SA Health, but it was rejected without explanation. A man who was pictured allegedly punching a horse during Sydney's anti-lockdown protests has insisted he was protecting himself. A lawyer representing Christian Pekulnik represented character references in court which painted him as, quote, a caring animal lover. He's been granted bail and he'll return to court next month. Marine rescue crews have paused a mission to save a humpback whale caught in shark nets off the Gold Coast. For hours, fisheries workers tried to free the animal, which surfers found distressed this morning. The efforts to free the whale will resume in the morning. 
Well, Taliban insurgents have tightened their hold on two-thirds of Afghanistan, seizing the seventh regional capital in a week. Despite Afghan forces retreating, the White House says the country must defend itself. The UN has shared reports of crimes against humanity in the region this week, including mass executions. CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward's in Kabul tonight. Uh, Clarissa, good evening to you from here. Can you describe, please, the situation there? It sounds terrible. Hi, Michael. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, certainly, it is a terrible situation. There's a lot of fear on the ground here in Kabul. Nobody could have predicted just how quickly everything appears to be unraveling. Nine provincial capitals now under the control of the Taliban. That's more than a quarter of the country's provincial capitals. Many other are facing a direct or imminent threat. We visited Kandahar, which is Afghanistan's second largest city. We also visited Ghazni, which is a major metropolis. Both those cities are completely surrounded by Taliban forces. The government is trying uh, desperately to counter some of the momentum that the Taliban has going for it. Yesterday, we saw the president, Ashraf Ghani, put out a message on Twitter urging people to basically sign up to fight with militias and join a popular uprising, hoping that potentially warlords might be able to help uh, prevent further disaster. But certainly at this point, Michael, there's no real sense of confidence that that will happen. Clarissa, the American president has said that the country must defend itself. But what's your take on what you're seeing there? Can Afghanistan defend itself? Well, I think you have a number of problems with regards to Afghan forces defending themselves, uh, particularly when you look at them in comparison to the Taliban. The reality is there isn't complete cohesion within Afghan national forces. There is a sense that morale is really low at the moment. And understandably, Afghan soldiers don't want to die. Mm. Um, the same cannot be said of the Taliban. There is much higher level of cohesion, command and control. Um, for them, dying in battle is the highest possible virtue. It means you're guaranteed a place in paradise. And so they simply don't operate in the same way that a traditional fighting force would, which makes it a formidable enemy for the Afghan forces to try to fight back against. We drove past a checkpoint yesterday, an Afghan a small base on the edge of a major city. And we literally saw Afghan commandos running from the base, hailing down civilian cars, getting in those cars and booking it out of the area because they were coming under fire from Taliban forces. As long as that kind of thing continues, whereby you see people deserting, running away, surrendering, then it is, you know, just a reality that the Afghan government is not going to be able to stand the test of time and face this threat from the Taliban. Clarissa, I was going to ask you just how safe foreign workers or translators, journalists like yourself are there right now, but I'm, I'm wondering whether the more poignant question might be, how safe are uh, the women in Afghanistan, the, the children? We know the Taliban's inflicted all sorts of crimes on them in the past. How safe is the general population? Listen, I mean, I think it depends what perspective you're looking at it from, Michael. If you're just looking at civilian casualties, they're very high right now. We visited a hospital in Kandahar. They said they'd seen double the amount of weapon-wounded patients in the first six months of this year as opposed to the year before. So civilian casualties are way up, which means that women are getting hit more as well. If you're talking about things like education, uh, women's rights, that's a different story. But there can be no question uh, that they're facing a really 
really bleak and uncertain future. The Taliban swears up and down that they've changed their ways, that they will guarantee women their rights under Islam, that they will be able to be educated. Uh, but we just spent some time uh, in territory where we were hearing a very different story from people on the ground, that they weren't going to educate the girls, that the only education they were giving those girls was sort of religious education, teaching them Quran. Um, and so there is a very real fear, uh, particularly in the cities, particularly from women who are educated, particularly for those women who have had to fight so hard mm. to get to where they are. And now they're seeing in a matter of months, this whole thing could be reversed. It's deeply concerning. Clarissa Ward, I very much appreciate you talking to us tonight and thank you for your time. A British man has been arrested in Germany accused of spying for Russia. The 57-year-old man, known only as David S, worked at the British Embassy in Berlin and was taken into custody for allegedly passing documents to Russian intelligence in exchange for money. The arrest came after a lengthy operation by MI5 and the British police with German officials. Supporters of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange have gathered outside London's High Court. A preliminary hearing is underway over the decision not to extradite Assange to the United States. U.S. authorities want him sent to the U.S. to face alleged espionage charges. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Well, Prince Andrew has been spotted on his way to the Queen's holiday residence in Scotland after news broke he was being sued for alleged sexual assault. Our bureau chief Hugh Whitfield is live at Buckingham Palace now with more. Hugh, good evening to you. What do we know about this uh, meeting at Balmoral? Well, Michael, the Duke of York is traditionally among the first visitor uh, at Balmoral when the Queen is in residence in Scotland for her summer holidays. And keeping with tradition, Prince Andrew has called in at Balmoral, along with his ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson, to see Her Majesty. They had dinner last night here. Uh, you can only imagine what sort of conversation they had around the dinner table. The Queen, of course, is stuck by Prince Andrew largely over the last couple of years as these allegations have been aired publicly. He was, in fact, sitting closest to the Queen at Prince Philip's funeral a couple of months ago, but this has certainly put the strain on the royal household to try and work out how they're going to navigate what happens now, keeping in mind that Prince Andrew has uh, maintained his innocence in light of these allegations, that he was uh, he had sex with a 17-year-old woman, Virginia Jeffrey, Virginia Roberts, as she was back in 2001, and this close personal relationship that he appeared to have with Jeffrey Epstein that put him in contact with Virginia Roberts back then. Uh, he maintains his innocence, he maintains that he never met Virginia Roberts uh, and uh, he is offering a firm no comment through his representatives right now. The thing for Prince Andrew is though that the, uh, the royal household is going to have to work out how they're going to deal with the Duke of York going forward and that could mean taking away his right to live at the Royal Lodge on Royal Windsor Park, which is where he's been living for many decades now. Sarah Ferguson still lives with him, although the two daughters, uh, the princesses, have moved out. It is a grace and favour mansion, and there is talk that Charles and William could be manoeuvring to essentially kick the Yorks out of that mansion, and the Cambridges could be next in line to move in. 
Hugh, clarify a point for me, though. This lawsuit, um, does it actually compel the Prince to finally meet with the FBI over his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein, or, or what is the course of the action here? Well, look, for, for all intents and purposes, no, because this is a civil lawsuit that's been filed by Virginia Giffray. It is not a criminal uh, lawsuit. There are no criminal charges for Prince Andrew to answer. We do know, though, that the FBI has been wanting to speak to Prince Andrew for some time. Ghislaine Maxwell will go on trial in New York in the coming months. There could be further evidence that is brought forward relating to the Duke of York in that trial. Uh, this trial, uh, this, this civil trial involving Virginia Giffray, is likely to take place mid-next year. Her lawyers say that uh, Prince Andrew's lawyers have been non-responsive uh, when they've tried to reach out in relation to this civil claim. They say that he's going to have to answer uh, to the court at some point, but he's here in the UK. They need to serve papers on either him or his representatives. It's going to get very messy and yeah. it is going to drag out for years, possibly decades. I ought to be a fly on the wall of Balmoral this weekend, Hugh. All right, thank you for your time tonight from Buckingham Palace. Well, Australia's two biggest cities in lockdown, state premiers and the Prime Minister agree vaccinations are our only way out of the pandemic. But how quickly can we reach our targets? And is the elimination strategy gone for good? Professor Catherine Bennett from Deakin University joins me now from Melbourne. Catherine, good evening to you. The path to freedom is certainly being paved with the vaccines on a policy level. This whole race to zero seems to have disappeared from all the narrative. Is herd immunity achievable when a chunk of the population refuses to be vaccinated? Well, there's some good news there. I think latest polls have suggested it's now only 10 or 11 percent um, planning not to be vaccinated. And we're certainly seeing an escalation in, in uptake. I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the Australian plan is really about not focusing on cases, not focusing on zero cases, but really making sure we've got the vaccination coverage with the public health response support to make sure we don't get overwhelming case numbers. So it might be that Delta's just brought forward that conversation about when we learn to live with the virus at contained lower levels in the community. Would you agree this week that we've turned the vaccine corner? Yeah, look, I think there's a there's been a real kick on and there's an incredible appetite. There's a lot of people who have been waiting for a long time mm. in those under 40s who are now, you know, really keen to have the opportunity to get that vaccination done and just to feel that, you know, we, we're taking that next step into the, the next phase, whether that's phase C on the, on, the, on the plan or whether it's just starting to get away from these rolling lockdowns. I think the phases, I think they've almost gone out the window in a weird way, haven't they? I, I know of at least five people in our close family family and friend circle aged 18 to 24 who've all gone and got AstraZeneca this week. So hesitancy about that vaccine has also started to dissipate as well. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it is a very, very small risk. But now the other risks that you're weighing up there, the risk to your personal health, if you're in the um, a city where you've actually got virus and you've got a real risk of contracting the virus, I think people now realise yeah. that that imminent risk from the, from the virus itself, from the infection, is something to be avoided. So, so you don't want yeah. that to drive people to vaccination, but it certainly made, I think, that risk judgment for people a little clearer. So that's good to see. So, Catherine, based on the current vaccine trajectory, with 80% of Australians expected to be vaccinated by 
I think mid-December is fair to say. When do you think lockdowns could end for good? The idea is the vaccine itself is doing the, the heavy lifting. That's doing the work that lockdowns normally do. Yeah. Then you can concentrate on using your test, trace and isolate and quarantine programs just to make sure that you still manage infections in the community. So I think we're in a position now where we'll be transitioning through our vaccination levels uh, with a better understanding of how much control that gives us and when we can then feel finally confident with this variant that's circulating that we're actually have it under control and lockdowns are a thing of the past. Well, let's not even think about another variant for now, although we know that's a possibility, but we'll see. All right, the vaccine rates are good. Professor Bennett, thank you. Thanks, Mark. There are around 2 million students undertaking remote learning across New South Wales and in Melbourne, with a growing number of families reporting increased stress at home. Psychologist and internet addiction specialist Brad Marshall is with us tonight. Brad, hello to you. Now, what are some of the aspects of homeschooling uh, that are really having a great impact on families? Yeah, it's a real tricky one, isn't it, Michael? Um, I, I mean, I think it's in general just the juggle that parents are facing and families are facing. When you look at parents that are trying to, for the most part, work from home and then they're trying to do the parenting as well and then they're pseudo-teacher and doing the remote learning and trying to keep on top of all of that, um, it's just become incredibly difficult and a lot of strain, I think, on a lot of families. It is. I've, I've witnessed that from quite a few people that I know too. I guess the phrase, pick your battles, comes to mind. Which ones do we pick? Parents need to give themselves a bit of a break. Focus on sleep and exercise. And if you can, social connection. Don't worry too much about getting 100% of the work done every single time. If you're going to have full-blown meltdowns at home over doing that, if you're getting 80 or 90% done, then that's probably a pretty good effort. Balance this for me, because I think a lot of parents would, would like to know this. What's the impact on the child of having a meltdown, which is completely understandable on that child, trying to oversee them and make sure they stick to the schoolwork, versus that child not doing the full day's schoolwork and, and not handing the full amount back to the school? Which one has the greater impact on the child? If there's a period of, you know, 8, 10, 12 weeks or longer, um, where a child is only getting 80% of their work done, but we're keeping their well-being in check, and that means things like sleep and exercise and not having too many meltdowns at home, then I feel like that's a way better scenario uh, for them heading back into school where they can catch that up. Yeah, I think some of the schools, or most of the schools, have been practical about that as well. Now, you practice in Sydney, Brad. What trends are you seeing in your, in your child patients right now? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's really concerning because even before this most recent lockdown in Sydney, we already saw an overall increase in children and teenagers seeking help. Um, and you, I think we're seeing that across the country as well. But since this lockdown, it's increased even more. How can we protect kids from some of that uncertainty, that anxiety? Yeah, I mean, the million dollar question, I, I think, you know, the best way to protect our kids is to try to keep some resemblance of routine through this and predictability. Um, and so establishing some really healthy routines in your family, despite um, all of this chaos, is, is really healthy for kids. You know, we've talked a lot about the kids, Brad, because that's your field. But uh, boy, there's a lot of parents feeling the anxiety and feeling like they're doing a lot of failing right now whilst trying to juggle work from home and the kids. It's difficult, isn't it? I think parents just need to remind themselves they don't need to be perfect parents, yeah. perfect teachers, perfect everything right now. There's no such thing as that right now. And, and a lot of parents just probably need to give themselves uh, a bit of leeway there. Good advice. All right, Brad Marshall, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. 
Thanks, Michael. Despite an afternoon fade, the ASX 200 managed to hold on to tap a fresh record high today, boosted by a strong profit announcement from Australia's largest lender, the Commonwealth Bank. While the major Asian markets also finished higher, there was weakness throughout much of the rest of the region. After the US Senate passed President Joe Biden's $1 trillion infrastructure package overnight, Wall Street did get a boost, but it is looking like a shakier start for US shares tonight. And after a rough August so far for oil, the price clawed back some ground earlier today. But no such joy for the Aussie dollar. It has slipped even further to now be buying around 73.3 US cents. Michael. Thank you, Jim. A French runner has defended his behaviour in last weekend's Olympic marathon event. You might remember this after he was criticised for knocking over a whole table of water bottles. Now, footage of the incident was wild, widely circulated online, with many people, including British TV host Piers Morgan, convinced Morhad Amdouni acted deliberately. Defending his actions, Amdouni insisted he was just fatigued, saying the bottles were just too slippery. Thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night.